0: This is a production of DermCast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. Um, I hope you've all had your coffee because I'm going to move quickly. There's a a large uh, area to discuss, including the diagnosis, immunopathogenesis, and therapy of both early stages of CTCL and late stages of CTCL. I'll hang around afterwards and would be pleased to answer any and all questions. I'd like to thank Ted Rosen, Eileen Cheever, Rose Hawker for uh, inviting me to participate in this meeting. And um, here we go. Well, greetings from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the first capital of the United States, Uh, and uh, in my opinion, it's still the cultural capital of the East Coast, Um, so we have a few questions for you, Um, and let's go through these. So, which is correct regarding therapy of CTCL? Can we use immune stimulatory agents when possible? Do we use multimodality approaches or more than one therapeutic option at a time when possible? Uh, Do we target both the skin and the blood when possible? Uh, And do we treat infection if necessary or all of the above? I like the music. Okay. When attempting to diagnose erythrodermic CTCL, one should obtain the following. Perform more than one skin biopsy. Obtain blood and skin T-cell receptor gene rearrangement studies. Perform peripheral blood flow cytometry for loss of CD7 and or CD26. Uh, Examine the patient for lymphadenopathy, uh, or all of the above. Marvelous. Which medication may be used for CTCL? Methotrexate, cyclosporin, azathioprine, anti-tumor necrosis factor agents, or anti il 1223 which is Stelara eustekinumab, Excellent. And which are acceptable for early CTCL? Topical steroids, topical chemotherapy, imiquimod, phototherapy, or all of the above? <laughs> Excellent. So, The good news is is that your disease has a very funny sounding name. The bad news is is the textbooks still claim that mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome, the two most common forms of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma are not curable except with a bone marrow transplant. That is not exactly true. I look forward to sharing some results with you. Uh, And I'm following many, many patients with both early and advanced stage disease who have very durable remissions In some cases, for decades, uh, in response to our therapeutic approaches that we use at Penn. So, these are the many faces and the rear end of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Uh, Patients with uh, early stage disease, um, and my pointer is not working here, but uh, the patients with early stage T1 and T2 generally have an excellent prognosis. They're uh, generally easy to manage uh, if you are aware of all of the therapeutic options. Patients with multiple tumors behave very differently from a single tumor, and and patients who present with a single tumor are often quite easy to manage. Those who present with multiple tumors uh, can uh, ultimately progress to unresponsive disease, uh, and erythrodermic patients are... Uh, among the most interesting that I treat, they too can develop quite resistant disease, but we have ever-improving therapeutic strategies for them that I'll share with you. Here is the malignant T-cell seen under the electron microscope. This is the so-called cerebroform T-cell. Cerebroform because there's an abnormal complement of chromosomes uh, or an aneuploid uh, uh, chromosome a uh, uh, karyotype in the ma- vast majority of these patients examined. An aneuploid karyotype and the mutational landscape is really quite enormous. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of different mutations that have been identified from patient to patient that are responsible, undoubtedly, for the pathogenesis of this disorder. And uh, why, why do we call this cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and the reason is, is that these cells generally have very high expression of cutaneous lymphoid antigen, or CLA, which permits these cells to interact uh, with activated endothelium within the skin. Uh, They bind, uh, rather than zipping through the endothelium. Uh, CCR4 is a critical chemokine receptor that is upregulated on the malignant T-cells in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And the critical chemokine for this particular chemokine receptor, the critical ligand is TARC, uh, that binds to CCR4. It's made in the epidermis and plays a critical role in recruiting these cells into the skin and towards the epidermis. One of the characteristic features that permits us to diagnose this disorder based upon the morphology of the biopsy. So what about the characteristics of the T cells in this disorder? Um, As you may have difficulty seeing this from the back of the room, but the vast majority of cases of cutaneous T cell lymphomas are CD4 positive lymphomas. There are a small subset that can be CD8. Uh, There are uh, other variants of cutaneous T cell lymphoma, including the paniculitic T-cell lymphoma that can mimic lupus paniculitis. Uh, There are other uh, 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 T-cell lymphomas. I will, uh, the only variant I will share with you other than mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome is the folliculotropic variant because I don't want you to mistake the diagnosis. It's a more resistant form of disease and I want you to be able to recognize that, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So these are helper T cells, CD4 T cells, and helper T cells characteristically instruct the immune response as to how to uh, respond to uh, various exogenous antigens. They orchestrate the immune response, and uh, uh, notably, you will see that these helper T cells in cutaneous T cell lymphoma produce a variety of soluble factors. Uh, Notably, they make Th2-type cytokines, IL-4, 5, and 13. Uh, One of the characteristics that we can see with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is often patients will have eosinophils in the skin. They'll also, in advanced disease, particularly with the Cesare syndrome, have circulating eosinophilia. And that's a clue, and I'm going to talk a little more about that tomorrow because when you see a patient with erythroderma and they've got peripheral eosinophilia, it's most likely erythrodermic cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and not rubra pilaris or erythrodermic psoriasis. It's probably cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So it's the interleukin-5 that drives the eosinophilia. In terms of the interleukin-13, which is an important component in atopic disease, and it's the cytokine whose signaling is blocked by the new agent, dupilumab, that is, that is FDA-approved recently for atopic dermatitis, uh, that will block IL-13 signaling, and it'll also block IL-4 signaling, two critical Th2 cytokines. So the question remains, will dupilumab have some efficacy for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma? It's an unknown question. When I walked into the room, I heard the previous speaker talking about interleukin-31, a fascinating cytokine that's made by these cells, undoubtedly responsible for the pruritus you see in advanced disease. And I'll have a couple of words to say about that later on. And then you see TGF-beta and IL-10, immunosuppressive cytokines. You see a number of receptors. Uh, You see Tigit, PD-1, and CTLA-4. These are immune checkpoint molecules. And I'm sure most of you have heard about immune checkpoint inhibitors, such as anti-PD-1. Notably, nivolumab and Keytruda are advertised on TV all the time. And we've completed a successful phase two trial with Keytruda or pembrolizumab for advanced stage CTCL. It's quite effective. There are going to be additional trials. Uh, You will see CCR4, which I've already talked to you about, and a successful Phase three trial was recently completed with an antibody targeting CCR4. It was quite effective for the leukemic variants, uh, whereby that antibody is able to take it out of the circulation. So again, uh, patients with early stage disease, and this is the skin scoring system, T1 through T4, T1, in particular, has an excellent prognosis. So how do we make the diagnosis? There are certain uh, characteristic changes we see. And this is a slide that uh, 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 has been provided to me, a series of slides by Scott Floro from the University of Utah. And here you see so-called Poitrier's microabscesses, uh, really quite characteristic of the epidermotropic the vast majority of cases of mycosis fungoides. uh, You see these collections of cells in the epidermis. Uh, Another critical sign that uh, Scott has listed here is the so-called sentinel sign, where you see the cells lining up at the dermal-epidermal junction. That's a critical finding that permits us to make the diagnosis uh, or be highly suspicious of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Uh, this is normal skin, and what you can see is uh, often a uh, lymphocytic infiltrate with mixed-in eosinophils in both mycosis, fungoides, and Cesare syndrome. Now, in the leukemic variants, which I'll discuss a little more tomorrow, um, you uh, in, the, in the medical case session, Uh, you often do not see epidermotropism. You may just see a patchy infiltrate within the papillary dermis uh, with T-cells and eosinophils, quite characteristic of Cesare syndrome, and it can make the diagnosis a little more challenging. We use immunohistochemistry, and when you see this increased CD4 to CD8 ratio in the epidermis, that's quite characteristic. Uh, in the cases, the vast majority of cases being CD4 disease. In the case of a CD8 lymphoma, you would see a predominance of CD8 T cells in the epidermis. So we, we always like to get a baseline flow cytometry on our patients. Uh, we look for an increased population of either CD7 negative or, in particular, CD26 negative T-cells in the peripheral blood. If we see more than 20% of lymphocytes with those phenotypes, it's highly suggestive uh, that these patients have peripheral blood involvement, which is quite typical of erythrodermic CTCL. What about T-cell receptor gene rearrangement? Well, um, in the absence of a pointer, um, I can't point out some... Uh, important instructional elements here but you'll see in in the top the top row so what is done is biopsies are taken our peripheral blood is taken sent to our molecular diagnosis lab Uh, they do uh, PCR with um, uh, T cell receptor gamma chain primers and then they run it on a gel the PCR products and what you see in the top is what you would expect to see in a healthy Uh, individual in the skin or the blood. You see this polyclonal arrangement. But if you look down to the next row you see arrows pointing at a monoclonal uh, peak. That is what you would see when there is a dominant T cell clone either in the skin or the blood. But what I'm showing you is a finding in patients with scleroderma, just to make the point that Although in the vast majority of cases, if you see clones in the skin, or clones in the blood, and in particular a matching clone in the skin and the blood, that is quite characteristic of a T-cell lymphoma, particularly cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. But the point is, you could see dominant clones in the elderly with increasing age, you see a greater frequency of a dominant clone in the blood, and an autoimmunity you could see dominant clones in the skin and the blood. And this is from scleroderma patients. We've seen it in lupus. We've seen it in pemphigus. So it's it's suggestive of malignancy, a dominant T-cell population, but it can be associated in other situations. So this is early disease. I hope you're well digested by the time you're looking at this rear end. Uh, I tell our residents that this is an arsiform rash because it's on the arse, Uh, but it it really is an arsiform rash, and uh, this is characteristic of early disease. We tend to see it in the bathing trunk area, and why is it restricted to the bathing trunk area in early disease? First of all, if it's restricted there, it means it's a reasonably indolent process. Second of all, The cells in the skin are quite susceptible to being killed by ultraviolet radiation. So that is often the reason why you don't see it in sun exposed areas because ultraviolet radiation will kill the cells that are in the skin. That's the very basis for using UVB and in some cases PUVA therapy. The very fact that you see central clearing in these lesions signifies that there is likely a host immune response and I think if you biopsy right in the center, you're likely to see a brisk CD8 killer T-cell response mediating clearing of the lesion. And indeed, that is the basis for the indolency of stage 1A or T1 disease, where these patients, by and large, if you treat them, they will have a survival that is comparable to the normal population but I suggest you do make every effort to use a therapeutic with early stage patients to assure that the small percentage that are going to go on to progress, that you, easily, that you uh, initially, you either retard that progression or help prevent that progression. And if you see a brisk CD8 response in the dermis, not in the epidermis, but in the dermis, with a predominance of CD4 cells in the epidermis, that's a good sign. That means they are responding to their tumor and they're trying to keep it under control. So, how do we treat early stage CTCL? Almost anything, virtually anything on this list, is effective for early stage disease. Potent topical steroids, nitrogen mustard, there is a we, we've had a 50-year history of using the ointment. There's now a new FDA-approved gel. Uh, there's carmistine, which is BCNU, uh, compounded an ointment, which I like to use for the folliculotropic variant. It's quite effective for that variant. We use a lot of narrowband UVB, less often PUVA. We, we try to save PUVA because it has a higher mutation-inducing rate for patients with thick plaques, or erythroderma, uh, we, we reserve narrowband UVB for patches or very thin plaques. Uh, topical retinoids can be effective but are quite irritating uh, and we like for, to use on restricted lesions amicomod, and as I will share with you towards the end of the talk we have a new uh, sister drug of amyquamod that we're putting into a phase two trial referred to as Rizicomod. And that drug will be a game changer for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and I'll show you why in a few minutes. What about topical steroids? They can eliminate malignant T-cells. They cause T-cells to undergo apoptosis. That's why systemic steroids are part of almost every lymphoma chemotherapeutic regimen for other non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Uh, They're a modest efficacy. Almost every patient we see coming into our clinic, referred from the outside, has failed topical steroids. Uh, They're useful to mop up after you've used other therapies. They're very useful as an adjunct for itching, uh, but keep in mind that potent topical steroids used in certain parts of the skin surface can induce atrophy. What about nitrogen mustard? Very effective, high degree of efficacy, Uh, It's not absorbed through the skin, so many of my patients are terrified to use it. They see the, the name nitrogen mustard. Oh, we're going back to World War II. It's mustard gas. Well, topical nitrogen mustard does not get absorbed through the skin. It gets inactivated. So even in the days where aqueous nitrogen mustard was painted from the neck to the feet, you could not measure it in the peripheral blood. So it's not absorbed, it, it gets to where it needs to be in the papillary dermis and the epidermis. Uh, contact allergy occurs in about one in five people. I think it occurs a little more often with the new FDA-approved formulation, which, uh, because it's a gel, can also be somewhat irritating, uh, but it's more readily available these days than getting the ointment compounded. Carmustine or topical BCNU, I particularly like this agent for the folliculotropic variant. It's much more effective uh, than most other topical agents. Uh, It can cause telangiectasis, so you don't put it on the face. It remains quite expensive, so one solution our hospital pharmacy has undertaken is to buy a gigantic supply of BCNU and now our hospital compounds our own ointment because we use it so frequently. In fact, I was told at a recent meeting we're the only ones using it in the country, which sort of surprised me because it was, it was popularized by Herschel Zackheim, who used it for many years at UCSF. It's otherwise safe um, and so we use quite a bit of it. Narrowband UVB, effective form of UV light, excellent therapy for patches and thin plaques uh, you can burn patients if you push it too quickly. Uh, long-term use can be associated with skin cancer, but far less often than with PUVA. Uh, and it's, you can develop maintenance approaches, but in my experience, when a patient requires maintenance, in other words, you get them clear and then they relapse, you have to start them back on therapy. And then probably the least frequent, we can taper it to keep them under control is one treatment every other week. On the other hand, you get very, very high response rates with sorolins. Efficacy is increased with any of these agents with a systemic therapy, interferon or targretin, also known as bixarotene. Uh, It's excellent for thick plaques. It's also, I will show you results that we published, little known results that it can have a beneficial impact on circulating malignant T cells. We've uh, done repeat flow cytometries and seen them improve on some of our leukemic patients. Uh, Reasonably high mutation rate and long-term use is associated with not only squamous cell carcinomas but melanoma risk uh, and perhaps even Merkel cell carcinoma that you heard about earlier. Uh, Maintenance works well, so if you clear people They relapse, you start it back, and you can usually taper them down to one treatment a month, which in my experience has been sufficient for most patients to keep them under long-term control. Other topicals, as I said, we use a lot of amicomod, which I I will comment on in a few minutes. And uh, Targretin gel and Tazerac gel are very expensive, hard for our patients to acquire because of the expense often but they're quite effective for small lesions. So when I see a patient like this who's got patches or plaques, particularly plaques as you see here, on more than 10% of the skin surface area, I get anxious. And it's these patients, 25% of them, who will progress to more advanced stage disease. So when I see a patient like this walk through the door, I want to nip it in the bud right away. And so, you, you wanna make sure you nip it the right way. You wanna give them systemic agents that potentiate or boost the immune response, not something like an anti-TNF agent or cyclosporin or azathioprine or mycophenolate uh, or anti-IL-1224, because if you give them one of those agents, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire, and you can see exactly what happened to this patient who, who, who got an anti-TNF agent for a mistaken diagnosis, and he became studded with tumors all over his skin surface area and had a poor outcome. So we, we like to use all the same therapies that we do for limited patch or plaque stage disease, topical therapies. We use PUVA for plaques rather than UVB. And we probably use more interferons in our clinic than anywhere else in the world and we have really excellent outcomes. Why do we like interferon? It boosts the immune response. And you induce long-term immunologic memory. That's exactly what interferons do. You, you generate T-cell memory. So after your patients respond and are on it for a while, they seem to have better long-term outcomes. Oral bexarotene, which is targretin, is a very good agent too. We've clearly seen not an insignificant frequency of resistance developed to targretin. And then there are a bunch of other agents. Methotrexate is useful for keeping uh, difficult cases under control. Again, keep in mind it is modestly immunosuppressive in low doses uh, and can have hepatotoxicity. And we use a fair amount of particularly romidepsin electron beam And have many of these patients on clinical trials. So the point is cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, even very advanced stages, are highly responsive to immune potentiation. So we use lots of interferon. We tend to start quite low because patients don't like it at the beginning. Uh, And we start it with acetaminophen or Tylenol uh, three times a week. The 1.5 million dose is quite characteristic of what we often start at. We even use lower doses. Keep in mind the hepatitis dose, which is no longer used because of all the new hepatitis drugs, uh, was three million units three times a week. So it's pretty well tolerated except at the start. Patients tend to tachyphylax to the flu-like symptoms that tend to occur. And then they become adjusted to it unless In some cases, they're quite elderly. The elderly tolerate it less well. So how does it work? It activates the immune response. It activates those cells that are critical for playing an anti-tumor role. NK cells, cytolytic T cells. It inhibits the growth of the malignant T cells which we clearly showed well more than 20 years ago. It inhibits production of those Th2 cytokines, IL-4, 5, and 13, which can play havoc with the immune response. There is a dose-dependent response, so you can work up on the dose, keeping in mind that the adverse effects are also dose-dependent, and response rates may be greater when you combine it with other therapies, such as PUVA, oral retinoids, In leukemic cases where we use photophoresis with photophoresis and another interferon, uh, that we use quite a bit of interferon gamma. There are initial flu like symptoms, which you can minimize by administering acetaminophen, which we prefer rather than using NSAIDs for a variety of reasons. Uh, these flu like symptoms decrease with each subsequent dose, almost guaranteed to happen with the first dose. So you have to warn your patient. In the elderly, the interferons can have cognitive effects. So you need to keep that in mind. There can be some increase in liver enzymes. It generally should not be considered worrisome. There can be neuropathy, which is reversible. So patients need to consider lowering the dose or stopping it if they develop peripheral neuropathy. Uh, Rarely, there can be thyroiditis or other autoimmune processes that are induced while on long-term interferons. Uh, If somebody has an autoimmune disease, particularly something like lupus, I would recommend not using interferon alpha. You may use interferon gamma though with lupus or other collagen vascular diseases, and I will discuss that more fully in a moment. Neutropenia and thrombocytopenia can occur. Just do not get scared by those things unless neutrophil counts are well below 1,000 per mL. Bexeratine, Targretin, developed and FDA approved in 1999. Uh, As you can see, there is a dose-related effect to induce programmed cell death of the malignant T cells as you increase the dose, and bexeratine 10 micromoles per ml is what you get systemically with dosing, and you do kill the cells in about 50% of the patients. Keep in mind that about half are resistant right from the start, uh, and there are a variety of reasons why that occurs, which we can address later. Uh, It induces cell death of the malignant T cells. It inhibits trafficking of the T cells into the skin, as probably do other oral retinoids, including isotretinoin and acetretin. That may be how acetretin works for psoriasis. It impedes the entry of cells, T-cells into the skin. Certain patients are consistently sensitive, while others are resistant. We've seen evidence of outgrowth of resistant clones, and we recommend using it together with an interferon or PUVA or photophoresis. Photophoresis, we, we reserve for leukemic patients. Advantages of bexeratine, it's effective for all stages. Uh, it's a, you get a dose response, and it's generally well tolerated and easy to administer. However, keep in mind that everybody's triglycerides and LDLs will rise remarkably, and you must start them on a statin right at the start And if they're on a statin, guaranteed, you're going to have to increase the statin. And if they have hypertriglyceridemia, you better control their triglycerides because it's like giving a gallon of vitamin A uh, with each dose of Targretin. Uh, It suppresses TSH. So you need to treat them with thyroid hormone, again, right from the start. Uh, and you cannot use the TSH to monitor them. You have to use serum-free T4. What about amicomod? It's referred to as an, as an imidazole quinoline. You'll see on the right Rizicomod, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, it's 100 times more potent than amicomod. Um, here's a patient who had a plaque. We treated it with amicomod, and this patient had it nuked. The patient was putting it on three times a week. This does, this, this does not happen on a regular basis. And the reason is the numbers of dendritic cells in the skin that are going to respond to a micromod are often quite low in patients who, who you're going to treat. And one thing that drives dendritic cells out of the skin that are going to respond to a micromod is topical steroids. So, you do not want to be putting a myquamod on the same lesion that is seeing topical steroids, or a myquamod will not work. And you'll see here the major kinds of dendritic cells in the skin. And you'll see on the right, a myquamod sticking to TLR7 on plasmocytoid dendritic cells. Often, there are very few plasmocytoid dendritic cells in the skin. And that can be the reason why emicizumab doesn't work in some patients. Also, the bioavailability is very low. And another reason is if you're treating them aggressively with topical steroids, they won't have plasmacytoid dendritic cells in the skin. Riziquimod will activate myeloid dendritic cells, and it's 100 times more potent. So Riziquimod really often works well. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it's in early phase trials right now and not for prime time. Tumor stage disease. When a patient walks in with many of these on the skin surface, I worry more about them than for any other type of patient. They can be a challenge. Uh, we often send them right to our radiation oncologists. Uh, Low-dose radiation for localized tumors, or four gray times two, is often quite effective and well-tolerated if they have tumors all over their skin, we will use total skin electron beam, quite effective. But we often use it with immune potentiating agents like interferons with targretin. Uh, uh, Farther down the list, if patients have rapidly progressive disease, we will use chemotherapy, but we often move first to HDAC inhibitors or ramidepsin uh, or Uh, Brentuximab, which I will mention in a moment. Uh, Clinical trials are underway, including anti-PD-1 agents. And these patients often will need a bone marrow transplant and have a frequent relapse after bone marrow transplant. Uh, But there are ways to control their disease after bone marrow transplant, including uh, donor lymphocyte infusions. Brentuximab. Uh, What it is, it's a monoclonal antibody that targets CD30 on the cell surface, and the majority of cases of tumor-stage disease express CD30. And it will target the CD30 on the cell surface, and Brentuximab has a toxin, monomethyl which will get released in the cell, and it will kill the tumor cell. It's quite effective for tumor stage disease, but unfortunately, bystander peripheral nerves often get targeted too, and peripheral neuropathy can be a limiting feature of the use of Brentuximab. So you can make limited use of it, very effective for tumor stage disease, but you can't overdo it. Erythrodermic CTCL, a conundrum, erythroderma, how do we distinguish this from psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, rubra pilaris? Well, more than 90% of these patients will have these malignant cells in the blood. So doing a flow cytometry or a gene rearrangement on the blood is absolutely critical. You will miss them if you do a single skin biopsy in over 50% of cases there are non-specific findings, so obtain more than one biopsy, and in fact, we, rec- we have the, p- these cases that are presented at our grand rounds almost every week. Patients who've been diagnosed with PRP or uh, atopic dermatitis, and I walk into the room and I start examining their lymph nodes, and the patients immediately become offended. Why are you sticking your hand in my groin? Uh, and... Uh, uh, it's because often these patients will have lymphadenopathy that's quite significant. And look at their blood, perform flow cytometry, and do gene rearrangements on their skin and blood. So how, what, what do we not want to use in these patients? You do not want to use anything that's immunosuppressive. The one exception is methotrexate. Uh, it can be a very useful adjunct in these patients. Uh, but we tend to use it, we tend to move it farther down the list after we have exhausted immune potentiating therapies and photophoresis. You can see we often put these patients on photophoresis if they have blood involvement. We, we treat them in combination with photophoresis interferon and bexerotene and often use a variety of other things to clear the skin and the blood, including electron beam uh, and PUVA, Here's the very first generation photophoresis device, which was almost magical compared to what we're using now, which is much less effective. There you see the the, the, the therapeutic effect. On the right is a dying T-cell that's undergoing programmed cell death. On the left is an antigen-presenting cell that's eating the dying T-cell that will presumably present tumor antigens to the normal immune system that remains. You would like to potentiate this response using interferons, and certainly our patients do much, much better when we combine interferons with photophoresis, when we combine targretin with photophoresis. Uh, We we no longer are able to, in most cases, justify GMCSS, GMCSF, but we've learned over the years that that, too, can be a useful adjunct because it enhances the numbers of antigen presenting cells in the peripheral blood of these patients. So here you can see uh, results of a study on 100 patients with Cesare syndrome we published in 2011. Uh, Literally a third of our patients go into remission with this combined regimen. The textbooks don't describe this. They still say it's a uniformly fatal disease. I'm still seeing patients now 10 to 15 years later, who remain in remission. Of course, I keep them on very low doses of interferon uh, because using the new uh, test of high-throughput T-cell receptor sequencing, even though they've been in durable clinical remission, you can often see small numbers of malignant T-cells remaining in their blood, one out of 1,000 cells or one out of 10,000 normal cells. And if you take away immune surveillance, they may have recurrence of disease. We use lots of interferon gamma in our photophoresis patients. You can see it's made predominantly by NK cells and T cells. Uh, And one reason why we like to use it is it activates antigen presenting cells. Uh, Macrophages, it activates NK cells, it activates T cells. So it's a very useful adjunct, which we've been using for 25 years. Uh, And uh, it's very difficult to uh, get it prescribed, but our pharmacy works with companies out there that support financing for our patients. It remains very expensive. It's a potent alternative. It may actually be more potent than interferon alpha. It's actually better tolerated in most cases. The elderly tolerate it better. There's a lower frequency of cognitive problems. There's a lower frequency of depression there's a lower frequency of autoimmunity. So that is often the reason why we like to use it in our advanced stage patients. Uh, It activates antigen presenting cells, very good for photophoresis, and it clearly activates killer T cells. Sorolins. we often like to use, you know, sorolin is the key ingredient that we inject into the cells during photophoresis. So what photophoresis is, it's really, to the circulating white blood cells. So we have learned uh, by following patients consistently that if you treat an erythrodermic or a leukemic patient with PUVA, you can actually long-term lower the numbers of circulating malignant T cells. But it's a difficult process and takes a lot of care to treat erythrodermics with PUVA because they burn very, very easily. So you have to start with very, very tiny doses. And uh, I'm sure farther back in the room, you can't read this, but the message is if patients with erythrodermic and leukemic cutaneous T-cell lymphoma cannot be cleared with biologic therapy, immune potentiating therapy, and photophoresis, often we are seeing, in the majority of cases, if you add high-dose total skin electron beam, you can induce durable remissions in many of these patients. Uh, and very very successful adjunct, but requires highly skilled individuals. So folliculotropic mycosis fungoides, this is a variant you should not miss. It has a worse prognosis than the epidermotropic variant. It can be confused for acne. You'll see these patients have milia, they have comedones, and the first case that I saw, my first year on the faculty at Penn. Uh, was a 70 year old lady who came in with acneiform lesions on her buttocks. I said, "Ah, why does this lady have acne on her buttocks? So I tried to treat her as if she had conventional acne and the lesions grew bigger and that she grew more of them on her feet of all places. And indeed, I did a biopsy. She had folliculotropic mycosis fungoides, which can simulate acne on the face and elsewhere on the skin Um, And it can be a mixture of folliculotropic and epidermotropic. And characteristic often is follicular plugging. And the pathology is centered around the hair follicles, where you see the malignant T-cells surrounding and actually entering the follicle. And you can see here folliculotropic mycosis fungoides below has... Overall, on a stage-for-stage basis, a worse prognosis than the epidermotropic variant. It's very difficult to treat, and we often like for these patients to use carmistine. Imiquimod is very, very good for uh, the face and for restricted lesions. Low-dose isotretinoin. Now, why does that work? Well, you know, isotretinoin is a poison for the follicle for the sebaceous gland and it will shrink it. And it seems to work extraordinarily well and better than Targretin for the folliculotropic variant. And interferon gamma is excellent for advanced stage disease and works better than interferon alpha. So here's a patient of mine, two patients, who were treated with carmistine. You see this gentleman had refractory uh, lesions, he was on interferon alpha and PUVA when he came to me, wasn't responding. So this shows that his plaque cleared on his neck, other areas cleared. All he was left with were some residual milia. This man had plaques all over his body and he is now in clinical remission. Uh, the lady below had failed interferon and PUVA as well. She had some plaques, plaques cleared uh, and uh, we've recently published this experience, so you can find it online uh, through PubMed. This, is, this shows you one of the adverse effects, probably one of the only adverse effects of carmustine ointment, uh, telangiectases. And this is a guy who was putting carmustine all over his body. He too had resistant disease uh, and responded completely to the carmustine. And he had been using topical nitrogen, mustard, and interferon alpha before. And in response to carmistine and uh, interferon gamma, has had a very durable remission. Okay, what about targeted therapy? You know, if, I, if you don't show a slide like this to oncologists, they get upset because that's all oncologists like to talk about these days is targeted therapy. Uh, characteristically, there are several that we use. One is the anti-CCR4 that has completed a phase three trial and hopefully will become uh, FDA approved next year. And anti-CD52, which is also called alamtuzumab or campath, very, very effective in low doses, uh, is particularly useful for erythrodermic patients, but not for skin only patients. Uh, What's important is you have to use low dose not the dose that's used for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is 30 milligrams three times a week, or you will cause infection. So 10 milligrams two to three times a week is the useful dose for patients with Cesare syndrome who don't respond to alternatives. It takes out their T cells, but unfortunately it will also take out their healthy T cells and their B cells, and you have to prophylax against infection. So here, this is just to remind you that CCR4 is expressed on circulating malignant T-cells, and this shows you that the anti-CCR4 agent is approved for adult T-cell leukemia, but so is varinostat in Japan, which is an HDAC inhibitor and uh, virinostat is the oral HDAC inhibitor that's available, uh, and ramidepsin is available for IV therapy. Uh, ramidepsin is quite an effective agent for refractory advanced-stage disease, produces about a 50% response rate, and is very, very helpful. Both of these will eliminate itching, probably by suppressing IL-31 production. So, in the trial that led to FDA approval of 74 patients, there was only a 29.7% response rate. Yet, the FDA approved it, and I think they were very impressed with the 63% relief of pruritus. And we have published that Varenostat works by suppressing IL-31 production, uh, quite effective for these patients but the duration of response tends, in most cases, to be short, usually no longer than six months. Patients do not like varinostat because it causes fatigue, nausea, and diarrhea. And these compounds can suppress the immune response. Here's a patient of mine who was put on varinostat, and she developed disseminated herpes simplex uh, and required uh, IV therapy And admission to the ICU, fortunately, she recovered. She's in clinical remission now, post bone marrow transplant, but uh, she almost had a fatal outcome here, and we now generally prophylax our patients with anti-herpes agents when they go on an HDAC inhibitor. Rami-Depsin, this is the FDA-approved trial, 96 highly refractory patients with advanced-stage CTCL, Uh, In the trial, a 41% response rate. We tend to see a higher response rate these days. Uh, Again, pruritus relief. Uh, The main side effect of this drug is severe nausea in about 50% of patients, uh, but generally uh, is better tolerated than varenostat. And you can see the blood often clears in response to ramidepsin. Uh, Marrow transplant, we like to use it for refractory cesary syndrome patients. We do use it for some refractory tumor stage patients. We have about a 50% CR rate. And if they have a CR, it's often easier to keep them a CR or at least a PR when they relapse. And there are a variety of strategies that we use. You heard about IL-31, the itch cytokine. And we were able to show very directly that the malignant T-cells in the blood of itchy Cesare syndrome patients produce increased quantities of IL-31. They can manifest the same clinical findings with profound erythroderma on therapy, but if their itching improves, you can show the same population of malignant T-cells now has reduced production of IL-31. A clear finding that IL-31 plays a role. And you can see here in these slides published in the JID that there's increased serum IL 31 in the itchy patients shown on the right, and increased PCR findings in the skin of, uh, of itchy patients on the left. We tend to put chemotherapies down at the bottom of the list high response rates of short duration, high refractoriness after they receive a few cycles. So we tend to reserve these often for very rapidly progressive patients to get them under control or to prepare them for bone marrow transplantation. I told you about checkpoint inhibitors. We participated in a a phase two trial with pembrolizumab, also known as Keytruda. Here is one of my highly refractory tumor stage patients with tumors all over the skin who got pembrolizumab he remains a near remission now a year and a half after initiating the trial uh, and is now receiving the drug off study and remains nearly clear. Just a phenomenal result because this, he was on his last legs. He had received everything that I've talked about and developed progressive disease, but has responded to this. And what this does by blocking PD-1 engagement with PD-L1, is it causes immune reinvigoration of exhausted T cells and leads to killing of the tumor cells. And in green and blue down below, the blue is the complete response, in green are the partial responders. We had a 40% response rate in these refractory patients. And the interesting finding is amongst those who responded, they had very durable responses. Uh, and so now we're moving into a, another Phase two trial, combining pebreluzumab with interferon gamma. So I show you dendritic cells again to make the point about risiquimod binding to not only plasmacytoid dendritic cells on the right, but to uh binding to myeloid dendritic cells on the left. And it activates these cells to make those cytokines that you can see that drive anti-tumor immune responses. And here you could see a patient at the top, his trunk, his hand, highly refractory, early stage CTCL with plaques. He had failed interferon and PUVA. He had failed nitrogen mustard. He had failed a number of other agents. And he nearly completely cleared his skin. Notably, something seen with no other topical agent. You'll appreciate his hand cleared without even treating it. He just treated lesions on his body and on his thighs and non-treated lesions cleared. This is characteristic of what we have seen with many of the patients in our phase one trial, clearing of untreated lesions. Why? Because it activates the systemic immune response, undoubtedly to activate circulating T cells to go into untreated lesions and kill the tumor cells. Here's another lady with highly refractory folliculotopic MF. She applied it to her lesions. Uh, within two weeks, interestingly, her generalized pruritus had cleared. On the right, the lesion cleared, just a little bit of inflammation. And what you also see clearing, what I show you here, uh, on the, in the middle slide is the result of high-throughput T-cell receptor sequencing on her skin biopsy showing at baseline that 20% of the T cells in the skin were malignant T cells at the start and you can see by week 8 she had 0% malignant T cells in the skin so she cleared all of her T cells a remarkable finding not seen with any other topical agent and you can see all the way on the left that with high shown with high throughput T cell receptor sequencing that the malignant clones disappeared in skin lesions in three of the ten patients we studied uh, and uh, nearly completely in a fourth and totally in nine out of ten patients studied the malignant clone was suppressed. Truly a remarkable finding. So, eliminating the cesary cell, how do we do that? Immu- use immune modulatory therapy. We utilize a multimodality approach for Stages beyond 1a we target the skin and blood when necessary and we treat Infections and I did not mention that erythrodermic patients just like atopics are very high They have skin very similar to atopics are very high carriers of staph aureus So they have recurrent staph infections so you want them to treat their skin just like recurrent staph infection patients do with atopic dermatitis You want them to do tub soaks. Uh, You want them to use Mupiracin in the nose. You want them to use Hibiclens. You want them to use bleach baths. So you encourage your patients to maintain a positive attitude. Practice healthy living. Because I can tell you we have data that shows that high saturated fat diets suppress the immune response. So if you have a patient who's gorging on butter, Uh, high-fat diets, lots of cheese, and they have hyperlipidemia, their immune response is depressed. Antigen-presenting cells don't work normally in that setting. And work with an expert in the field, because we know what's out there and we know what's coming. So which is correct? Do we use immune stimulatory agents when possible, use multimodality approaches, target the skin and the blood, and treat infection? or all of the above? Ah, uh, we got the desired effect. Some people, 3% are sleeping. Which is correct regarding therapy? Up, oh, we got it, okay. When attempting to diagnose erythrodermic CTCL, one should obtain more than one biopsy, obtain blood and skin T cell receptor gene rearrangement, perform peripheral blood flow cytometry, examine the patient for lymphadenopathy, or all of the above. Excellent, very good. Which medication may be used? Methotrexate, cyclosporin, azathioprine, anti-TNF agents, or used to kinemap? Excellent. We do not want to use anti-TNF agents for those who voted for that. Very dangerous for this patient population. What are acceptable? Which are acceptable for early CTCL? Topical steroids, topical chemotherapy, imiquimod, phototherapy, all of the above. Okay, you get to kill me. <laughs> the overall purpose of the speaker. Thank you very much. And I guess we have some questions that come up. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Ah, how do you treat CD8 predominant CTCL? So this is important. You probably do not want to use interferons at the outset because interferons can activate CD8 T cells. So you use skin-directed agents if it's localized disease, nitrogen mustard, phototherapy, and if those are not effective, maybe a pinch of interferon alpha, a retinoid, uh, and watch carefully. Uh, Electron beam is useful for tumors. Uh, HDAC inhibitors are useful. And brentuximab can be useful for those that have tumors that express CD30. Can patients progress from T1, T2 to T3, T4? Yes, they can, uh, more often to T3 than T4. Usually patients who present with erythroderma have, pre- have had that occur with sudden onset rather than slowly progressing from early stage disease. Cesare syndrome is probably a different disease from uh, skin only, CTCL, uh, and generally erythroderma onset is de novo. Where would you recommend taking a biopsy? Uh, You want to take a biopsy where it's red. That's ideal. On the picture of the buttocks, would you biopsy on rim? Yes, I would biopsy on the rim. Uh, Why is diagnosis of CTCL so elusive? Because often the typical morphology is not present. You may not see epidermotropism. You may just see the sentinel sign with cells lining up at the dermal-epidermal junction. And with the erythodermic variant or tumor stage, you may also only see a dermal infiltrate, which can make it more difficult. Okay. Thank you. This has been a production of DermCast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.